Hello again. Let's talk about manna. Manna is the bread that God provided the Israelites while they were wandering through the wilderness after escaping slavery in Egypt. Now, literally, in Hebrew, manna means, what is it? And they called it that because it was this stuff that, that appeared on the ground and just kind of showed up, and the Israelites had never seen anything like it before. And so they looked at it and they said, what is it? Or manna. But manna, manna tasted great. It, was, it tasted like sweet honey. And the people didn't really have to do much to go about acquiring it. It was quite literally manna from heaven. So, you know, all in all, not a bad meal to enjoy while wandering through a barren wilderness without much other source of food. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, there, there had developed a popular Jewish thought, it seems, that when the promised Messiah came, he would also be able to provide manna from heaven. And while that thought isn't directly brought up in Scripture, we do have record of that idea in some non-biblical Jewish writings. And I think we even see some allusions to it in parts of Scripture. So, for instance, there's this, this time in John chapter 6 when, when some of the people ask Jesus for a sign so that they may believe in him. And the sign that they ask for is for him to bring manna from heaven. Again, that comes in John 6, which is this roller coaster of a chapter, and it comes the day after Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a couple of HEB bags worth of food. A miracle that John is careful to point out was a sign that all of the people saw him perform. And after starting the meal with just five loaves of fish, five loaves of bread, and two fish, you might say that this was Jesus providing bread from heaven. Like, admittedly not manna, but dangerously close. And the next day, the, the crowd of people that Jesus fed the night before, they follow him to the other side of the lake, because why wouldn't you want to follow a guy who can do something like that? But when the crowd catches up to him, Jesus tells them, You are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, which they did see, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're only following me because of what you can get out of it, not because you're interested in who I am and what that means. And so the people say, okay, fine, you want us to believe in you? You want to talk about signs? Then give us a sign. I mean, you know, besides the whole bread and fish thing, like, like I tell you what, I tell you what, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. You want to give us a sign? Provide us with some manna from heaven. And Jesus basically just kind of says, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's me. I'm, I'm the manna. In reality, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Okay, so now the people, they just start grumbling, which is another direct callback to their ancestors. 
There are lots of Exodus, uh, lots of Exodus imagery and allusions throughout John 6. But they just start grumbling because who is this guy to say he's from heaven? This is Mary and Joseph's kid, right? Like we know where he's come from and it is decidedly not heaven or even a close proximity. This dude's from Nazareth. So, you know. And Jesus then repeats this bread of life claim and, and points out that their ancestors who ate the manna in the wilderness died, which seems pretty obvious. Uh, but it, it's, it's part of a larger point that he's making. Then he says, not only am I the bread that's come down from heaven, but anyone who eats of my flesh will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And not surprisingly, that did not make the people feel any better at all. So Jesus says, hold on, let me explain. Sorry, this is getting weird. I, I, I know, let me just back up and, and kind of rephrase some of that and, and explain myself a little more. Actually, he doesn't say any of that at all. Instead, he keeps pushing and he gets weirder. He leans into the tension and resistance and uncomfortableness of everything going on. He says, very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And at this point, I like to picture Peter just like somewhere in the back with his head in his hands, just thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus, I'm the one who has no filter at all, and I can't believe the things you're saying. <laughs> this is very, very bad. Meanwhile, Jesus just keeps going, and, and he hits the point again about the manna, just to, to make sure that they really get it. He says, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And, and so Peter, maybe he's still got his, his head down, and, and now people, though, are brushing past him and bumping his shoulders as they turn to leave, because this is just getting too weird. John tells us that from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Like, it's not just the critics who are turned off by this whole conversation. It's his disciples and Jesus at one point just straight up asks some of them, does this offend you? In other words, do you think I'm taking this too far? And many of them pretty much say, yeah, we do. We're out. Like this, that's enough. So today we're beginning a new series on the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in John's Gospels. Beginning with this statement of I am the bread of life. And the I am statements are full of, of hope and comfort and encouragement. And there are certainly places in Scripture where we can, where we can turn to for, for strength and renewal. And this statement in particular just comes across warm and inviting. I mean, what gluten-loving person doesn't love the smell of freshly baked bread or, or the taste of warm, homemade, buttered toast? Like, this is only good, cozy, easygoing stuff, right? Jesus is a, a nice loaf of freshly baked bread ready to make your day better. Who can't get behind that? 
But as we saw in our quick run through John 6, Jesus gives this description of himself in a way that that almost seems intentionally off-putting and offensive. In the way that Jesus lays this out, it was a challenging teaching that made the people uncomfortable, combative, and angry. And not only was Jesus okay with that, he seems to to intentionally push the conversation in that direction. And what sounds like this beautiful picture of Jesus as our sustenance and source of strength was at the time so offensive to a large number of his own disciples that they deserted him because of this teaching, because it was just too hard. And I know that this is a time when we are all looking for hope and encouragement and peace. And running to a statement like, I am the bread of life, seems like a natural place to go for those things. And I think we can find those things in this statement. But in the narrative, that aspect of this teaching comes on the other side of some uncomfortable, tension-filled moments. And I think that's intentional. Like, Jesus seems to want this teaching to exist within some tension. He wants people to wrestle with this and and squirm a little as they consider what it means to ingest Jesus as the bread of life and have him be their source of strength. You see, manna didn't really require much of you. Like, sure, the Israelites had to to show some faith by, by only getting enough for each day, But not even that demanded too much because when they did take more than they were supposed to, the extra just spoiled anyway. So it's not like they were faced with this difficult choice of of hoarding extra or trusting that there would be more tomorrow. So manna didn't really demand much. You didn't have to change anything about yourself to eat the manna. And nothing about you was changed as a result of your eating the manna. We're still going to get hungry again later. But at one point, toward the end of this back and forth with the crowd, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. You see, eating this bread is different. Manna doesn't stay with you. You have to keep eating it, and and eventually your body gives out and you're going to die. But if you eat the living bread, you are born into eternal life and made new. You are made a new creation. You are transformed because Christ stays in you. Manna doesn't ask much of the one who eats it. But the bread of life does. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we want manna from heaven that will taste good, demand very little of us, and be completely self-satisfying? Or do we want to be transformed by the bread of life? And I don't ask that question lightly. Because if we choose the second option, it's going to lead to some moments of, of tension and uncomfortableness that may bear some resemblance to the situation Jesus' words create in John 6. As we consume the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ, and therefore we take on his ministry of reconciliation. And reconciliation means making things right, 
bringing about justice and, and pointing out the places in our lives, our communities, and our world where the light of love has not yet driven out the darkness. So where does consuming the body of Christ and becoming one with him push us into areas of tension? How is taking in Jesus as the bread of life pushing us into situations where we are exposing, confronting, and seeking to dismantle injustice, oppression, and hostility? As I said at the beginning of our service today, it's been quite a week in our country. Uh, the last several weeks, in fact, have brought vivid imagery and, st and, and stories of the racism that still plagues our country. It is our country's original sin, one for which we have never fully repented of or made all-encompassing efforts to leave in our past. And while it is true that, that we have made strides to prohibit and, and stigmatize the most repugnant and overt forms of exclusion and suppression, we have in many cases failed to address the structures put in place that, that perpetuate the barriers faced by people of color still today. We may all be born as equals, but society, structures, and institutions give some of us privileges, advantages, and opportunities that are not afforded to everyone. Now, that does not mean that, that life cannot be difficult for those of us who are white, but it does mean that the difficulties we face are not the result of our skin color. On the contrary, the color of our skin affords us with, with privileges many of us have failed to recognize to recognize as such for far too long because, because we simply believed that they were a part of life for everyone. We have wrongly assumed that everyone, regardless of color, has had access to the same opportunities as us. But people of color face structural barriers when it comes to securing quality housing, Healthcare, employment, education, voting access. Racial disparities also permeate our criminal justice system and undermine its effectiveness. So yes, we can tweet, post, pray, and speak out as voices seeking justice for George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Dean, who was shot right here in Temple, and so many more. We can and should condemn and decry these individual acts that are the result of racial bias at best and full-blown racism at worst. But true justice means creating conversations, seeking policy changes, and recognizing our own biases and prejudices in ways that push us toward a future in which people do not have to fear for their, for their lives and fear of losing their lives because of their skin color. A future in which no burdens are placed on people from birth simply because they are not white. And yes, the looting that we have seen in our country over the last several nights needs to stop. It's unfortunate and it is not productive. However, there are many reports that, that much of the looting that is being done is, is being primarily done by opportunists with various agendas who are separate from the protests and the protesters themselves. And it also rings incredibly hollow to now ask black people to protest peacefully when they have been shouted at and condemned for years for their silent forms of anti-violent protest.
Ultimately, we cannot decry the response to oppression more strongly than the oppression itself. To quote Martin Luther King Jr., I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. So may we stand with those who are calling our attention to oppression that still exists. And saying things like, I'm not racist and and I have black friends is, is simply not enough. We must proactively push for change while recognizing, acknowledging, and repenting of our own biases and blind spots. Let us examine our hearts for the places where we may be harboring prejudices and examine our lives for the places where we may, even in in inadvertent ways, be perpetuating the suffering of others. Let us examine, too, our our motives for the questions that we ask of others and, and the expectations that we may place on them. All of that requires soul searching. It necessitates repentance and lament. It means listening to the stories, experiences, and difficulties of people of color while exhibiting the strength, empathy, and compassion to not respond with defensiveness or justifications or explanations, but with grace, openness, and love. And now I fully understand that that those conversations mean moving into some uncomfortable territory. But may we be like Abraham and be willing to get up and go, even if it, it means some missteps along the way. And I realize that movement in that direction may lead to some tension. Tension that you may even be feeling right now, and tension that is admittedly not enjoyed by this conflict-avoidant Enneagram 9. But we must come to a stronger desire to make genuine peace than to focus on keeping some false and shallow version of it that turns out to be a mirage for so many people anyway. So may we embody not the crowd's response to Jesus, the crowd who who turned away when things got too difficult, but instead embody the response of Peter, the actual response of Peter that's in the story. You see, when the crowds started to turn away and leave, Jesus turned to the twelve and and asked them, well, you don't want to leave too, do you? And of course, it's Peter who speaks up first to say on behalf of the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the eternal words of life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. You might even say that adhering to the words of Christ and accepting his, his mission of restoration, reconciliation, and renewal means feasting on living bread, on the bread of life. And if we are unwilling to deal with the, the tension and the difficulties of pursuing justice in the name of Christ, 
if we are okay with a mindset that accepts things as they are because they, they are better than they used to be, then we may be looking for manna instead of the bread of life. In each of these online worship gatherings, we've set aside time to share in communion together. And this is a time to remember not only what Jesus has done for us, but, but to remember what is asked of those of us whom Christ has remained within. And so may our time in communion, prayer, and meditation this morning be filling and enriching as we share in the bread of life. And may it be challenging as we consider the path's eternal life in his name may lead us to explore. We're going to pray our prayer of confession together and then share in this time of meditation and communion. Let's pray. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.